0: So as we start thinking about this, a uh, quick question for you, uh, kind of a, an easy question this morning. Do you worship idols? Anybody worship idols? You know they answer that. Um, kind of a tricky question, right? And perhaps most of us would think, well, no, I don't worship idols uh, because we don't have little statues in our home. We don't offer incense or bow down to them like we see uh, so often around Thailand. And so we may think, well, I don't, you know, I don't worship idols. Uh, and in that sense, probably would hope, none of us do, but of course there is a sense, uh, there are other senses in which we can be idol worshippers, where can, we can give ourselves to idolatry, and one of those would be if we really put anything as more important in our life than God, so if God's not a family, if he's not the first in, in importance and devotion and worship in our life, if anything comes above God, that, that is idolatry, and so in that sense we all are guilty at times of, of, of idolatry, Right? There are times when we count things to be more important than God. And ultimately, anytime we sin, anytime we, we know God's told us not to do something, or He's commanded us to do something, and we refuse to do it, what we're in essence to saying is, is that is more important to me than God is. And so that thing becomes an idol, even if just for a moment, when we give in to that temptation, it becomes an idol. So of course, in that sense. If we're honest, we would all have to say, "Yeah, there's times when we all are guilty of of, idol, of idolatry in that sense. Uh, whether it's money or sex or comfort or thrills, or even family and ministry, can actually become overly important to us. It right? uh, can come out of priority. Not that some of those things shouldn't be a priority, but they can become out of priority. Um, but, but there's yet one more way in which we can be guilty of idolatry, and this is much more subtle. and uh, and can creep into our life and, and we don't even see it or realize it. And that is when we make or conceive of God according to our own ideas rather than according to how he's revealed himself in Scripture. And so when we 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 have an image or this picture, this creation of who we think God is, but we shape him according to our own ideas and not as he's revealed himself in Scripture. And the reason this is tricky is that the way we do this is we, we don't completely go against the Bible, right? We believe that the Bible tells us things about God, so we, we draw our knowledge of God out of Scripture, but we limit what parts of Scripture inform us, right? We're selective. So we pick, we pick the parts of God that we happen to like, uh, and we hold on to those, and we reject the things that the Bible says about God that we don't like. Um, and and this is really becoming I think a serious problem in our day and age Um, and I think many people in the the modern world are drawn to be spiritual I think people in our day and age sense that something is missing in their life and they want an encounter with God they want some spiritual dimension to their life Um, but to do that they create very much a God of their own making uh, society has told us what God should be like and, and society, our world, likes the notions of, of peace and of love and a world where people live together in harmony, which is pretty much happening, right? People are getting along, I know it's happening in America this one big happy love fest going on there yeah. um, society dies that, right? We want, we want to get along with this idea that we can all live together in harmony and peace and we can like each other uh, and we, and we, so, we want a God who's like that. We want a God who's all about love and harmony and peace, uh, which is true. God is those things. God, believe me, wants harmony in the world far more than any human being. Um, but the problem is that um, that's not all there is to God. Right? God has, um, scripture tells us, God has, has ideas about right and wrong, and he... He tells us how to live. And if we don't do what God says, we don't follow His laws, the Bible says it's sin, and it says that God will judge sin. And of course, those, that's where we start losing people. And right? it's like, ah, that's not, that's not the God of love and happiness and you know flowers and peace and all that good stuff. right? Um, so they're worshiping a God that is an idol. And, and of course, sadly, Christians are, are, can easily get sucked into this And churches, I think, are getting drawn into the demands of culture who say, this is who God should be. And we're not going to accept or worship a God who's not our image of who God is. Um, So they make an idol by picking and choosing from the Bible the things they like and and really quite rejecting the rest. And it is quite subtle. And um, we, we really need to be constantly evaluating our thinking Uh, and our ideas and our views of God and testing them against Scripture to see if we're not unconsciously uh, creating an idol, creating a God that we want to worship because He fits who we think He should be and not really what He has revealed Himself to be in the Bible. So I want to look at at Exodus chapter 11 and uh, there's some great ammo for this in this passage because there's, there's, there's kind of two sides of God. I want to kind of look at both and, and uh, see how, uh, you know, how kind of check our hearts that we're not being tempted to ignore or reject parts of the story that are not comfortable for us. And how we, what do we do with those doubts about God? What do we do about those ideas about God that, that don't make us really feel really good about who God is? What do we do with that? So let's uh, look at the passage. And uh, First off, uh, just kind of run through the story. Um, it's, it's the last plague, and, and clearly, what God is doing here is He's showing that He's going to save Israel by His own sovereign power. Um, it's, it's, it's ten, ten mighty wonders have gone by, right? And He says in this verse, He says that the Lord said to Moses, "Yet one more plague, and I will bring upon that I will bring upon Pharaoh in Egypt." After that, he'll let you go. The end is near. This is the last, the final blow. Uh, This is the end. Um, After these ten mighty and increasingly devastating signs and wonders. Right? It's getting worse and worse. And this is the last one. Uh, And it's clear that God is going to do this one by his own sovereign power. Uh, And when God gets done, Pharaoh's not only going to be willing, but he's actually going to chase Israel out of Egypt. Um... But what's interesting is, up to now, the ten signs and wonders that have happened so far have really done nothing to move Pharaoh. Uh, He he has not changed his heart in terms of getting free. The Israelites are no closer now than they were when Moses threw down the rod and it turned into a snake. Nothing has changed. So it would be easy for Moses and the Israelites to be quite discouraged. Um, But the truth is that the signs and wonders have had effect. They have been working some effect. Just unfortunately not on Pharaoh. But it has been changing the views and the minds and the hearts of the Egyptians as a whole. It says in verse 3 that the Lord gave uh, the people, that is the Israelites, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So uh, God promised that... uh, that he would do these things so that they would know that Yahweh is God. And certainly that's happened. All the people of Egypt have observed these things and they acknowledge Yahweh.
1: And they are now
0: turned, there's a chain of hearts. They're, they're favorable towards the Israelites. They see that their God is mighty and great. I mean, he's done these incredible wonders. And they're somewhat in awe of the Israelites and in awe of God. And in fact, the um, Pharaoh's servants are, um, you know, they're 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 shifting their loyalty away from Pharaoh. They're seeing how stubbornness and pride of Pharaohs getting them in trouble, and they're they're interested in um, letting the people go, right? They're they're all about that, and and so God is clearly working, even though um, Pharaoh is just as stubborn as ever, Um, and in fact, the. Uh, chapter the end of Chapter Ten. It says the Lord continued to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he just would not let them go. And Pharaoh said, "Get away from me! Take care, you never see my face again." And Moses said, "As you say, you will not see my face again." So things are at a climax and a, at an end. But Pharaoh is unmoved and unchanged. But but God says this is going to be the final straw. This is how this will happen. This is how I will move. The unmoving Pharaoh. In verse 4, he says, So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out. Okay, that's that's something different. Right? Up to now, God has said, Moses, I want you to raise your, your rod, I want you to extend your hand, and and the wonder will happen as you bring it about. But now Moses is no longer in the picture, and it's God himself that goes and He says, I will go out in the middle of the night. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. And the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn slave girl who's behind the handbill. And all the firstborn of the cattle. And so God's going to go out in this last... And he actually calls this one a plague. We said they're not all actually plagues. But this one he calls a plague. Right? It's, it's death coming upon the people, upon among every firstborn, as God himself goes out and by his own sovereign power alone... He snuffs out the life of every firstborn. Um, and it's, it's, uh, uh, it's God doing this. And the result is going to be, uh, he says in verse, uh, uh, verse 1, second part, afterward, Pharaoh will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Um, so what happens is, Pharaoh's unmoving, he's stubborn to the very end, but how is it that God in his power is going to affect this great rescue? Well, of course, He causes the death of all the firstborn, uh, it will bring great grief upon Egypt. But it says even in that, even in that, Pharaoh is going to become more and more stubborn. How is it that God is going to get past Pharaoh? Well, it says what's going to happen in verse 8. He says, and after all that, all these servants... All your servants, all the servants of Pharaoh. In other words, all of Pharaoh's government officials, that's who the servants are, his cabinet, his advisors, his generals, all of them, it says they're going to come down. In other words, they're going to step down from their positions of assigned authority. Right? And they're going to come down and they're going to do what? It's awesome. They're going to bow before Moses. Right? They're going to bow before Moses. What happens there? Well, it's, it's essentially God's going to save the Israelites by treason. Right? In other words, what's going to happen is all the power of Egypt is going to turn their back on Pharaoh, and they're going to come and they're going to acknowledge Moses and bow, in other words, and surrender. The feet of Moses are saying, Moses, get out. Get out. We, you win. We bow before you as your servants, not as the servants of Pharaoh. So in essence, what God is doing is he's going to win by stripping Pharaoh of all of his power. So even though God will not change his heart, he'll be as stubborn as ever, he's going to strip away his power. And without his generals, without his advisors, without his government, it doesn't matter what Pharaoh wants. If the people don't follow him, he's lost his power. Right? And so that's what's going to happen. And God is going to, um, God's going to win. And uh, just to make sure that we're very clear, he ends chapter, t- chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, by saying, uh, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Even after all that, the threat of the death of the firstborn, the prophecy that his own government will abandon him, Pharaoh still refuses to change his heart. He says, he will not listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. So, so uh, what's the main point of the story? If boil it down into one simple point. What is he saying here? Well, the point is simply this that God saves because he is in control. Right? That's the whole point of this drawn out exercise, this battle between God and Pharaoh. God says, Look, I don't need. Pharaoh's cooperation. And just to prove the point, I'm going to make sure that he never cooperates to the very end. Right? That he's not he's not going to give in one bit. He's going to be stubborn and resistant to the very end. Because I'm going to show you that Yahweh is sovereign. I'm in control. I'm the one who rules kings and kingdoms. And I will free, I will deliver my people because I am the great, I am the almighty God. And I will work out my plans uh, without anybody's help or cooperation. That's why it's significant in this last last play, Moses is not even involved. It is God himself who goes out. And it is God himself who defeats Pharaoh. Um, And the encouraging message for this in us is that we can trust God because he is sovereign. Right? If God could overcome Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the most powerful country in the world in that day, a man who nobody can move, if God can, can play with him like a toy and can mess with his head and can do whatever he wants with him, then right? it means that for you and I there is no obstacle, there's no power, uh, there's nothing, except for this microphone that I can. Right? There's nothing... Uh, that will keep God from doing His work. That will keep God from accomplishing His purpose in your life. Right? So you may be struggling with money. You may be struggling with time. You may be struggling with relationships. Um, God can overcome every obstacle. You may be struggling with immigration, uh, you know, in this country or another country. Um, you may be struggling with government officials. Doesn't matter. Right? God. Is bigger than all of that, and you can trust Him. Um, and certainly, we could uh, we could stop the message there. We could find some ways to apply it. Um, but I've intentionally skipped some things in this patch I want to go back and look at uh, things that, um, if we stopped here, we would be maybe in jeopardy a little bit of creating an idol, right? Uh, of teaching the message that God exists for the sole purpose of rescuing you and that it's all about you. And we like to hear those messages because we want it to be all about me, right? I want, I want it to be me who's the center of the story. Uh, and certainly God loves us and we are very important to Him. Uh, but there's more to it than that, right? We could come up with the impression that God wants to save people and He's this good and kind and gentle God who's loving. And if we just turn to him, he's going to fix everything and make it better. Uh, but if you actually look at what's going on here, that's not actually the God that's being portrayed here. Because um, people are dying, right? In fact, a lot of people are dying at the hand of God. And so I want to go back and look at some of those pieces and some of the questions that certainly the original audience reading this wouldn't have, wouldn't have thought about. But the modern person reading it maybe you as you read through the story kind of question what's happening here. And if you don't question it, by the time I get done, you will be questioning, and, and I will have created my doubt unnecessarily. <laughs> Sorry about that. Right, but let, let's think through this again one more time, just looking at some, um, some questions. And the first one is, the big question I have is really, where is justice in all this? Right? Where is justice? There are some things in this story that, humanly speaking, as I look at it, I think this is very unfair and unjust. unjust one of those. Lacking justice. i having a hard time with words today. Okay? So so where is the justice? So let's look at this. First of all, um, as, as the plagues unfold, as I said, it's very clear that the Israelites are experiencing a change of heart. Right? They um, uh, it, it, Says in verse two, you know they, they've experienced this change, change of heart. God has given the Israelites favor in the sight of the Egyptians and even in the sight of the officials. In fact, Moses says, "I want you to go uh, every man and every woman to his neighbor and ask for silver and gold jewelry." Because this is how much favor they have that like the um, the Egyptians now the Israelites are going to go to them and they're going to say, "You know, we're leaving soon and um, bank books a little empty." Uh, could use some gold and silver, some food. You have got some nice clothes. We would really like to take them with us on our trip. Hand it over, right? and, and God so changed the hearts of the Egyptians that the Egyptians do it. They go, yeah. We kind of feel bad for you, and we, you know, we realize we've been kind of harsh and oppressive, and, and you know, we've, we've made slaves of you, and that was very uh, unfair. And so, yeah, we we're going to give you our gold and our silver and our jewelry and our, our wealth. I'm just going to hang it over to you, right? So there really is uh, this change of heart among the Egyptian people. Uh, before the Israelites were nothing more than mere slaves. Ten signs and wonders later, they kind of stand in awe, and they have a new kind of respect for certainly Yahweh and, and His people. Um, and as and we read through this passage, it's clear that the only one holding out here is who? Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh's the stubborn jerk in this whole thing. right? His own advisors are no longer really following him. They don't support his, his, his resistance. Right? Uh, it's only Pharaoh's pride and stubbornness that is standing in the way. Nothing else. Uh, but in verse 4, as we read, uh, the Lord says, I'm going to go out at midnight. And I'm gonna, uh, every firstborn of the land will die. And by the way, just to be clear, because sometimes people get confused on this, but when he says every firstborn, he means every firstborn, from the highest and greatest to the least, uh, the young and the old. It's not just children and babies, it's the young and the old. It's male and female. And it's unfortunate, some translations actually say firstborn son. It's not in the Hebrew. Okay, the original just says the firstborn. And it applies to male and female. To human and animal. So, what it means is nobody escapes this. Right? There's no family that's not going to experience the loss of death. Whether a spouse, a parent, a child, a brother, a sister, you know, if you're if you're if you're in the world alone and all you own is your dog, your dog dies. Okay? Nobody misses out on this. It is a universal judgment upon everybody in the land. Uh, and, and God said in, in Exodus 6, he said, this is how it would be. He said, I am the Lord. I will bring, speaking to the Israelites, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So what God is going to do here is he's is going to judge Egypt. And it's by these great mighty acts of judgment that he's going to deliver and rescue them. By the death of the firstborn. So, if you're a thinking person, and you think about how this is going to work, you know that babies are going to die. Very small, young infants are going to die. People who haven't had a chance to do anything wrong yet. How is it that they can fall under this judgment? This seems very unfair. Especially when it's just Pharaoh that's being stubborn, right? All the people are... They kind of change. They're they're with the program. Let the people go. How can God bring such a severe judgment on the whole people of Egypt because of one man's stubbornness? That just doesn't seem just or fair. Any amends on that? We've got to be careful here, because we know that God is just, but it just seems kind of wrong, right? It seems um, extreme that even babies would, would, would have to suffer the consequences of this judgment. Well, to, to sort this through, um, we, need to ask, we need to ask what is justice? What is justice? What is, what is meant? What is required by justice? Well, justice is making certain that people get what they deserve or what is fair. Right? So, justice means that the innocent should be protected. Right? And, and in our countries, that's what the, the police uphold justice. They try to protect victims from those who would harm them. Um, And it's making sure that the guilty are punished. That we don't let people who mistreat others get away with it. It's making sure everyone gets what's right and fair. That's justice. Um, And and this does seem to be unjust. It seems that God is being uh, harsh on those who have done nothing wrong. And ironically, Pharaoh himself is, is unharmed. Except he does lose his he does lose his firstborn son, uh, and God does this to uh, people who whose hearts are changing. And so where is the justice? And of course, modern society would would claim, the, "See, this is God. God is mean. God is vindictive. God is is random, and God is not just." That's what modern man would say. And, and and certainly a lot of Christians seem to agree with that because they won't talk about God's judgment on sin. God's harsh, extreme punishment where God would do stuff like this. I don't know, I don't know how, many, how many churches put this on their sign out front every Sunday morning worship God He kills babies. Right? <laughs> I'm Just I'm not going to sell. And right? it seems harsh. It seems unjust. Um, well, Here's the interesting thing. Modern society would claim that God is not just. And they would demand justice of God. God, we demand from you justice. Um, in fact, it's interesting that no matter how far societies slide and drift away from God, that every society in the world upholds justice. In fact, I think it's ironic that in, in certain parts of the world, uh, where corruption reigns, right where governments are, are notoriously corrupt. in none of those countries do they actually uphold corruption as a value they they hold on to, right They would verbally say, well, corruption's bad, right even though they participate in it. It's a value that they hold that you know, we should be just, right? We should fight against corruption. Uh, so we hold on to the highest standard of ju- justice and and we expect that of God. God, you should be just. And in fact, if God is not perfectly just, then we would say as believers, theologically, God can't be God. You right? would not be perfect if you were not perfect in His judgments and in His justice. Right? It's part of what it means for God to be God. He must be just. And absolutely, perfectly just. He must be absolutely fair. And if He's not fair, He cannot be God. He can't be perfect. He can't be holy. So we affirm that. And certainly scripture, affirms that. out. Through and through, scripture from beginning to end talks about the priority of justice and the standard of justice and fairness. In fact, one of God's great condemnations of Israel later on is that they were not just, that they were not treating people fairly. Right, so, so God, if we believe the Bible is true and what it says about it, its standard and who God is, we have to accept that God is, in fact, absolutely perfectly just. And that what he does here is somehow right and fair, even if we don't see it or understand it. Uh, and I'm, beginner, I'm not going to begin to try to explain God's justice and how it is right for him to do this with Egypt. But let me just say a couple of things, a couple of observations. Uh, first thing, uh, the world greatly misunderstands justice, right? greatly misunderstands justice. And in the modern thinking and in the modern mind, what, what we mean by justice is that justice means upholding my rights. Right? That I have the right to do whatever I want. That I have the right to be in complete control over my body. Specifically what I want to do with my body. Right? Obviously I can't control other people's bodies. But there's a, a thinking in the modern mindset that I'm God of my own body, my own life. And nobody can tell me what to do with my body, with my life. I can do whatever I please. And justice means upholding my right to, to do whatever I want. Okay, So, for example, I get to choose my sexual preference. right? It doesn't matter what genetics have given me or how God has created me. No, it's a free choice I have. I get to decide my sexual preference. And God has no say in that. And, and, and justice means my right to choose that. Uh, I get to choose... Uh, who I have sex with and what sex I have sex with and when I have sex with whatever sex I have sex with.
1: Okay.
0: I just said S-E-X word about ten times in one sentence at church. Wow. Right. Uh, justice is my right to do that. Right. And if, if there's justice, it means nobody stands in my way. That's justice in the word modern definition of the, of, of the term. And if, if, uh, if a girl gets pregnant as a result of that, She gets to choose whether the unborn child in her life, in her body, lives or dies, because she's God over her life, right? And and justice is that she gets—her choice is protected. Okay, in the modern definition, that's justice. Um, So, by by the modern standard, uh, justice—the job or duty of justice—is simply to protect my right to be God over my own life. But of course, uh, the Bible has a very different view of what justice is. Because the Bible says that you did not create you. Your life does not come from you. It it comes from somebody else. You are made by a God who is creator of heaven and earth. And he actually gives you life. You breathe, you actually have, the the cells in in your body have life. Because God breathed it into you. It's a gift from Him. And because He's both creator and sustainer, uh, as it turns out, God has the control over your life. Now there is a sense, there is a sense actually in which you are not God over your own life. The reality is that you are responsible and in control of your body. Nobody else can control it. Right? Ultimately, it is your will that governs your life. And the the truth is, you are free, and you do have the choice to choose good or bad without what you do with your life. You do have those choices. And it's true that even God will not stop you. So in that sense, we are, at some level, God over our life. But we're not supreme God over our life. Scripture is very clear that every single human being will stand before God, and they will give an answer for the choices they've made about their life. God sets a standard. And, and uh, his standard is just. And this is how it works. Uh, justice does not mean. Getting your rights. Justice means doing what is right. Okay, There's a difference. Okay, It's not getting your own rights. It's doing what is right. It means that there is actually. Right and wrong in the world. There's good and there's evil. And. Justice is, uh, is doing what is right what is good for yourself and for society and for uh, all that God has created. Uh, what is good? Well, what is good is what conforms to God's standard and His values of a perfect God who created us. So justice is ultimately not whole, upholding people's rights. It's upholding God's goodness. It's God's goodness. And God gets, God gets to decide that, not us. We we do not decide goodness by majority vote. Praise God for that, right? Because apparently voting has flaws. Um, So we don't get to vote on what's good. Uh, God sets the standard. He decides what is good, what is holy, what is right. And justice must serve His standard of goodness. So here's the deal. What is justice? Justice. Well, justice ultimately means getting what you deserve. And you know what we deserve? Not good things, right? Every human being has violated God's law. Right?
1: And if we get, and
0: the the, the thing is, the, the world screams out for God's justice. If God gave them what they deserve, he would wipe them out. He would pour down judgment, because that's what we deserve. We have violated his his standards. We have not upheld his good. Um, And certainly that's true of, of Egypt. All of Egypt deserves God's judgment because they had oppressed and abused Israel terribly for generations. For generations, and all Egypt had participated in this oppression and abuse. And, and, they, and because of that they deserve judgment and here's the thing here's the, here's the rub that we got to remember right? we, we know this does a change of heart cancel out your debt in other words does changing your heart to start doing good things does it wipe out all the bad things you did in the past no, right we know that even our own governments enforce this I, was just, I got to go to Australia this last week had a great time there but, uh, and our friends had a car they let us use so we could drive around and get lost. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, but they said, be really careful because they've got these speed cameras all over the city everywhere. And they said, if you, if you go even one kilometer over the speed limit, it will take your picture and they'll give you a ticket and a very large fine. Right? So I was just scared to death, right? Because I'm thinking, if I drive the speed limit 99.9% of the time and I just get distracted for like five seconds at the wrong time, I right? Slip over, boom. You know, so I'm driving like 20 miles an hour, you know, just crawling along, right? And, and the thing is, there's justice, right? If you go over the speed limit, justice says you pay the fine. Now you can't go to them and say, hey, look, I was driving the speed limit for hours and hours and hours, right? And it was just, it was just like 10 seconds that they went over. Right? Does all your good driving cancel? No, you pay the fine. You pay the fine. Right. You were guilty, but well, we know that, right? And so all of Egypt is guilty, and all of Egypt must pay the, pay the price. Um, real quickly, I want to go into depth of this, but you could say, well what about the babies who were, didn't even live long enough to break the speed limit? They right? didn't live long enough to do anything wrong. How could newborn babies you know, get caught up in this? Well, real quickly, the, the short answer because I'm running out of time. But the short answer is, the judgment was not taking their life. Right? The judgment was not so much on those who died. The judgment was on those who, who lived. Right? Uh, he said, "There's a great cry. There will be a great cry like they've never heard in the past or in the future." Right? Uh, life is a precious gift of God, and we we value it, and we 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 hold on to it, and we should because it is a it is a crazy amazing gift. And we all know that when when we lose somebody, when somebody dies, it's painful, the loss that goes with that. Um, But death itself is not an evil. Now the wages of sin is death, and I can't go into all that. Uh, It is true that it is part of the curse. But death itself is not evil. And and just to emphasize that, it, it says that God goes out in the middle of the night while they're asleep, and there's no suffering, right? They just die, and the wailing is not the wailing of people dying. It's the wailing, it's the wailing of people waking up and finding loved ones in their family that have gone. Right? That's that's the wailing. So God's very actually gracious, right? Um, I hope I die this way. I hope I go to sleep and just don't wake up. And that's not not a bad thing. right? So God, God is gracious even as He pours out His judgment. Um, but His judgment is on those who live, right? The, the, that they would feel this incredible loss, of something very precious to them. Um, so, so, there is justice, and, and God absolutely deals with perfect justice in what He does to Egypt. Right? No one can can convict God of a crime here. Um, second question, and we don't have as much time to cover this. We'll just real briefly. Second question is, where is the love? Right? Where is the love? Um, it says in verse uh, in verse five. Oh, sorry, verse six. Uh, there shall be a great cry through all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been or ever will be. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man nor beast. <coughs> Why? So that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Okay, God picks Israel, and he does not pick Egypt to show his mercy and kindness. Um, Now, is that because Israel was all that much better? Absolutely not. And we'll see later on in Exodus, it turns out that the people of Israel are just as stubborn as Pharaoh. They're no different. They're just as deserving of judgment as Egypt. But God chooses, he picks them, he says he makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel, and God chooses to show kindness and love and favor to Israel. Well, that just also does not seem fair, and it doesn't seem very loving. And the modern world again has this notion that if if God is love, that He must love everybody equally. But that 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 love that chooses, that love is if love is selective, it can't be love. Okay, now I encourage you to explain this to your wife. All right, dear, if I really love you, I won't selectively choose you alone. Right, I'm going to choose all women. Because that's how love is, right? You choose them all. As you can see, there would be problems with that logic. Don't try it. Okay, don't try it. Love is, by nature, selective. Right? It is choosing someone over someone else. Uh, So that is part of the nature of what love is. And God God is a loving God, and he chooses Israel over Egypt. Um, But even here, it's not because God doesn't care about Egypt, because he doesn't love them, um, it's because of the nature of what love is. And you know, you guys all know, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter right, love is patient, love is kind, love is gentle, you know, self-control, doesn't keep score. And of course, the last one, not every translation has this, but the last one, and love is angry. Right, is that what your Bible says? Well, sadly, Paul left that one out, which is too bad, because actually love is angry. There is something right about Anger when you love somebody. Of course, your, your anger is not at the person, but if you care about somebody and something bad happens to them, what's the natural response? Oh well, that's kind of sad. Remember that happened to you? No, you get angry. Right? You're angered when somebody you care about deeply is hurt, hurt, or harmed, or mistreated. Uh, it's a very interesting. Verse in verse eight. Notice what it says. It says. Uh, again, Moses is speaking, and he says, all your servants to Pharaoh, all your servants to Pharaoh will come down to me and they'll worship me. I mean, they'll, they'll bow down to me. Not worship. They'll bow down, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And uh, end of quote. And, then, and it says, that, and Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Hot anger. Why, why is Moses so angry? Well, Sadly, it doesn't really explain it, so we, we must take a guess. We can't say this with certainty. But um, you know, what, what's going on? What's behind his anger? Is it hatred? Is, is uh, Moses angry because he just hates Pharaoh? Well, if that were the case, uh, he should go out happy and angry because huge peril and destruction is about to follow on, on Pharaoh. Right? If, if his anger is driven by hatred, he should be super happy because of all the bad stuff that's about to happen to Pharaoh in Egypt. So I don't think it's, it's hatred. Um, maybe it's fear. Right? Maybe fear is what's driving his anger. Uh, but in this final plague, he's just been assured of absolute definitive victory. Right? So, so fear shouldn't be behind it because he should be celebrating. Hey, we win. The victory is right here. The finish line is right here. We're going to win. Game over. That would result in anger. That would result in rejoicing. But what if what makes him angry is love? What if what makes Pharaoh angry is that he looks and he sees the terrible suffering that's going to come on, on other human beings because of the stubbornness of one man? And he is outraged. At what must happen because this one man is so stubborn. It would make me angry. And it would be a righteous anger to burn. uh, with anger, hot anger. Because of the consequences of sin. Throughout scripture we see this even with Jesus where he is enraged because of the consequences of sin. Why? Because, Because of love. It's because God loves Israel that he is angry at Egypt because of their oppression and the way they have treated them. And so love demands an anger response. right? That he deals with Egypt in justice, but a justice that's fueled by his, his love for Israel. And... Um, one other issue real quick. Uh, what is free will? Where is free will? Over and over it says God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. As it turns out, free will is not that free. Short answer, none of us actually have absolutely independent free will. The truth and the reality is we are all influenced by many voices around us. Right? When you make a decision, you're not making a decision absolutely without the outside influence of others. Right? That's why advertisers spend millions of dollars on advertising. So you'll buy Coke instead of Pepsi. You'll, you know, whatever. Um, Because they know they can influence your thinking. Uh, God is free to exercise influence on us as well. God's not overriding free will because he wants to influence us. But God doesn't actually override Pharaoh's free will. Um, Pharaoh is stubborn. And he is resistant. And God just kind of makes sure he stays there. Right? He just keeps him in that path. And he just makes sure that the ditch gets deeper. So he's more entrenched in his stubbornness and pride. You see, God can't over, overpower our will. Well, he could, but he won't. God will not overpower our will. He will not make Pharaoh act contrary to his will. He just makes sure his will goes to where it's headed. Um, Pharaoh was never compliant. Pharaoh was never on God's side. Pharaoh was never willing to work with God. And, and God does not overpower. Over, he just keeps him in the same direction. Um, that's a boundary that God has set. So, let me apply this real quickly with just this one basic question. You know, I've given these answers... And if you're a thinking person and you really kind of think through this, you're going to be thinking, eh, it still doesn't just quite fit, right? There's just something missing here. And the reality is, in the Old Testament, it is, it is impossible to resolve love and justice. Because people suffer. There is the outpouring of judgment and wrath on what seems to be innocent people. God is very selective in his love, focused primarily on Israel um, it seems unfair. Um, and throughout the Old Testament, it's always a, it's, it, there's this tension between a God who has to be perfect in justice and a God who has to be unfailing in love. But of course, then we come to the New Testament and we find the only place where love and justice could be appropriately resolved, and that is in the cross. Until Jesus comes, the answers will always be a bit inadequate or leave us wanting. But That's the brilliance and wonder of the cross. Because in, in, in the cross, God pours out the fullness of His wrath on sin. His wrath that comes out of His love because of how sinners have been wounded and hurt and abused. And God pours out the fullness of his wrath. But instead of pouring it out on on us who deserve it, he does what? Pours it out on Jesus. He pours it out on on his son. And so justice is completely satisfied. Nobody gets away with a single crime. Not even one kilometer over speeding. Even if the Aussies didn't get you, right? Jesus pays for every crime every error, every injustice, everything we've ever done, it's paid for on the cross. But at the same time, in the cross, God poured out the fullness of His love because He poured out judgment on His own Son and not on us. In Egypt, it was the firstborn of Pharaoh and the firstborn of Egypt who died to pay the price of redemption. But for us... It was God Himself who paid the price of redemption through His own Son, His own dearly loved Son, um, because He loved us. Because He loved us. And so for us, uh, salvation is a gift that we simply have to receive by faith. Um, And in that sense, God makes no distinctions. Right, Anybody can be saved. Jesus' death is universal for every living human being, regardless of tribe or tongue or language or history or background. God's grace is a free gift available to every person. So in that sense, God chooses no one. It's available to all. But it's also true that God still does make a distinction. And the distinction is between those who have trusted the finished work of Jesus and those who have rejected it. For those who receive it, there is life eternal. There is the blessing of God's grace and forgiveness and His love. But if you reject it, if you reject what Jesus did to take your judgment, to take your place, uh, God will distinguish. There will come a day where God will sort out His children from His enemies. And, And He will judge severely those who reject Him. Uh, God is not going to mess with our free will. Right? He will influence us, and praise God, He draws us to Himself. But He will never overcome our will, and for those who refuse Him, He will leave them to their way, and He will judge them. But for us, praise God, uh, we don't get what we deserve. Amen? We do not get what we deserve. Instead, we get his free, loving gift of grace. If we will just, by faith,
1: grab hold